Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to a realm where reality intertwines with the inexplicable, where the boundaries of reason dissolve into the shadows of uncertainty. Welcome to the political twilight zone. I am your guide to this enigmatic labyrinth, where politics and power take on life of their own. In this dimension, the threads of truth weave a tapestry of intrigue, challenging our perception of the world we thought we knew. In this world, nothing is as it seems, and the truth lies buried beneath layers of deceit. Prepare to venture where reason meets the unexplained, and where the unexplained might just be. Happy weekend, everybody. This is Rick Wagner, getting it right here on KNZZ, KGLN. We're at 1192.7, 980, and 101.3. Of course, on the Internet, you can get us very easily. And you can hear our podcast of the shows and a few other things sometimes by just clicking on uh, our website at therickwagnershow.com, which has a lot of cool stuff on it and not signed to sell you anything, by the way. And also, you can uh, get it by asking for the podcast on, like, go oh, iTunes or your Alexa device or uh, um, just several others. So it's, it's getting it right with Rick Wagner usually gets it there. So thanks a lot again for coming in. So well, some of you have been saying, uh, are you an alarmist? Uh, the barbarians are at the gate. You know, I mean, things work out. I hope you're right. I'm trying not to be an alarmist, by the way. But little things that just don't seem to be a good idea for a long-term nation's survival uh, kind of keep popping up. Now, certainly we'll talk about this Trump thing here and where I'm at, Colorado. Yeah, and uh, I wish I could say I was more surprised, uh, but uh, I'm not. We have not had a... Republican governor here since 2007. Uh, that would have been Bill Owens back when I could, I could have been a judge when Bill Owens was there. Now, oh, <laughs> oh boy, I'm, I'm not even, not even sure that he, that, that, that the governor would take my calls. As a matter of fact, I'm sure he won't. But anyway, what I would say is that this is just another shot across the bow of the republic, not the democracy. Our democracy. Democracy. It's our democracy. What are you talking about? Democracy is, in fact, a form of government. It's really a form of running government by voting from citizens. It, it, we're a republic, okay? It just bothers me. Now, one of the reasons that the left especially doesn't want to use the word republic is they don't know what it means. Okay, so you got to cut them some slack. They went to Harvard. They don't know what a republic is. They don't know what oligarchy is. They, they use some of the terms. They don't know what they are. But the other is that a republic is – it really rubs the Democrats the wrong way. And you can see why. Because republic, by its very nature – has a certain degree of freedom and autonomy between its constituent parts. In our case, it would be the states. This is the last thing that the modern progressive Democrat wants. You're not supposed to have any laws in your state that are different than the laws that the federal government have in place. We've already seen huge portions of the criminal law just sucked into federal law. It used to be that the Supreme Court would look pretty hard at that and say, is there, one, a compelling reason for that, two, 
what, how do you get into the state's business? And of course it becomes the interstate commerce, which has now been stretched and beaten and uh, just in such a way that it, it, I don't know even how you can get them to say interstate commerce doesn't apply to anything because it seems to apply to everything. So once you get that, then you can say, oh, the feds can be involved with it because it affects interstate, interstate commerce. And so they have so drastically increased the amount of federal law or concurrent with state law that republicanism, with a small r, and f- I guess federalism as its uh, close twin, is almost disappearing. And they're okay with that. It bothers them that California can be so progressive, but it can't force Nevada to do it. To say nothing about Texas, how dare they have laws that are different than California, which, of course, knows everything, especially knows things about running people out of the state. But they don't like it. So that they love democracy. Because democracy has within it not just the idea that we should all be able to vote, but the rule of the 51%. If you don't have checks and balances, as we like to say, on a democratic way of voting in a democracy, then you are constantly at the will of the mob which changes all the time and usually is manufactured by who has the best speakers, demagoguers, or media, which they think they have now. The tyranny of the majority, as John Stuart Mill discussed, is a terrible thing. And it's also quite fickle. Changes easily. People's emotions and understanding of events change rapidly. We also have a civilization out here in our nation where we have folks that don't know what they're talking about. I don't just mean disagreements over philosophical ideas, but they don't know what the philosophical ideas are. They're they're victims of bumper stickers. I don't know what we call that kind of reasoning before we had bumper stickers, but it it's this idea that there's just some two or three sentences that you just keep saying over and over again. And many times when questioned about what those sentences mean, you don't get much of an answer. Certainly not one that, that indicates that the person saying these things has any basic understanding of what they're talking about. There was a, uh, oh, uh, I, I saw it on a, two or three different sites, and I think it might have been on Fox, too where there was this lady waving a Palestinian flag, once again, don't give me, and she was, uh, as she was standing there, she, the guy was walking by, and she said, I believe, from the nation to the sea, Palestine will be free. And he goes, well, what, do you, what do you mean? She goes, well, yeah, well, from the mountains to the sea. And he was like, what mountains? What are you talking about? You know, And, of course, she didn't know what mountains, because there aren't any mountains there. And it's actually from the river, which is, of course, the River Jordan, to the sea. And that would, of course, eliminate Israel in toto. But she didn't even know what she was talking about. She's out literally trying to get as much attention focused on herself as possible by waving a flag and hurling out this gibberish. She had no idea what she's talking about. 
obviously not exactly a scholar on the geography of the Middle East. And that's the people that are out there. So if you have a, if you let your democracy get too far ahead of itself, those kinds of people get louder, meaner, and harder to talk to and can affect your country in a very bad way. The Greeks found that out, trying to direct democracy in at least a limited way. Well, kid yourself, not every single person in Greece got to, or in the city-states, of which there were hundreds, were able to vote. But as they opened it up, they were became quite aware that this was getting to be a problem, that you know, there was things were changing too fast. It was too easy to do things. They were exiling people that were popular so that they couldn't become... Uh, you know, demagogues and leaders like uh, Cleatus of Athens. You know, so they they saw it. We can study it. We understand it. We understand why the Romans did it differently. They studied it a lot. They studied several other forms of government and came up with their form of government in the Republic and even into the Empire, much of which is reflected in our own country to try and stop these kinds of things. Now, we all know there are some things in the Roman Republic and uh, pushing through through the Roman Empire that were problematic that we sort of have now, and I get concerned about that. But nevertheless, direct democracy was not something that everybody adopted because they saw it in, in Greece. It was a good idea then compared to what everybody else was doing, you know, an army of slaves in Persia and things like that. However, you know, the Persian Empire was not as bad as, as we might think, but nevertheless, it's pretty bad uh, on a day-to-day basis. But it didn't work directly in Greece. It had to be modified to lose our democracy. Yeah, folks, here we are again, uh, struggling to save our democracy, if you listen to some of the pundits out there. Uh, we're struggling to save our way of life. We're struggling to save our republic, of which democratic voting is a part. But I don't want to get, you know, what's the point of trying to educate these people? It's not, it's not useful. It bothers you. And what is it that was used to be said? Never try and teach a pig to sing. It annoys the pig and no one really wants to hear it. <laughs> Maybe that's how that goes with trying to educate the left. Better to educate ourselves so that when we do run into people that are capable of listening and just don't have all the facts, that we can present them to them and, and, and bring them into the light, as it were. Here we are in the light uh, of our uh, of our democracy. Hopefully we're still in the light. We're not in the fading sunset of it. But I was looking at something along the lines of... Uh, the Path to Biden Impeachment is the title of the uh, work that I was looking at. It's on our website, therickwagnershow.com. Kimberly Strassel wrote it. Kimberly is really a, you see her a lot in the Wall Street Journal, and she's on Fox and some other places. Very, very smart woman. Uh, really had started out in finance, which she's still pretty good at. And uh, she has some great ideas and a, a good way of putting them. The question she poses, since we're in this struggle for whatever our government's going to look like, is the path to Biden's impeachment. Let's say that we could get there. Is that fight really worth it? That's a really interesting question. 
Does he deserve to be removed from office? Oh, yeah. He doesn't deserve to be in office. That's beside the point. The struggle is that we're going to end up having what many people were worried about when they did the Donald Trump impeachments. You know, two of them. One, sort of the way you do impeachment. The second, very little to do the way impeachments are supposed to be done. Didn't make any difference. Uh, They just ran them through. Now are we going to just start trading uh, impeachments, depending on who has a majority in Congress. And I might add that we don't have much of a majority in Congress. Even uh, our past speaker in leaving, you know, he's leaving Congress, Kevin McCarthy is, said that he thought that expelling Santos right then wasn't a good idea. Santos hadn't been convicted of anything yet. I mean, he looks like he's just crazy as a bed bug. But not only has he not been convicted, but it, it just hammered down our very thin majority in Congress. In the meantime, I mean, most of Santos's stuff is all about himself and his money and, you know, this crazy stuff. We talked about it before. In the meantime, we have Jamal Bowman, who just clearly, I mean, I don't think I can give him a whole lot of benefit of the doubt, uh, pulled a fire alarm to try and disrupt a proceeding in Congress. It's pretty darn obvious. You know, his motive was some things were going through that they didn't want to. The Democrats wanted to slow things down. This guy shows up, uh, pulls a fire alarm, ducks out of the frame, because happens to be a camera on him, and he gets, uh, what is it, a class two, I don't know, petty offense, misdemeanor. And he's just okay. And when he was censured, like we talked about last week, all these other Democrats came and stood around him shoulder to shoulder. What was the point of that? I kept asking that then, too. Is it to show that you think it's actually okay to just throw fire alarms in the middle of Congress if something's happening you don't like? Is is that what your solidarity is about? I would like to have asked somebody who was standing in solidarity with Jamal, what, what, are, you, what are you in solidarity with? The fire alarm being pulled? Um, his story about that he was confused about uh, that something that said fire by a door would open it. Uh, what what's what are you doing? It was just defiance, really. They they have they're not really standing with him. They are standing in defiance of what the Republicans are doing. Really has little to do with Jamal Bowman. It has a lot to do with the Republicans really lack of unity most of the time, and also just making a point, once again, uh, from the left, to try and say that this looks like it has some other kind of undertone, like it's a dirty trick to try and censure him for pulling the fire alarm, or somehow that uh, pulling the fire alarm and then noticing it and then doing something about it is uh, racist in some way, Uh, whatever the way they want to try and play it. But it's interesting to think about their motivations because most of the time they don't really have anything to do with the topic, really. They have to, or the individual, it has to do with some broader paintbrush they're working with out there in terms of a social or political agenda. But anyway, Kimberly Strassel talks about, you know, do we really want to go through this fight? Now, is there terrifically more evidence that Joe Biden has really tracked dirty shoes all over the presidency oh yeah 
and the vice presidency. It looks like the Senate. Does he seem to be worried about it? No. Uh, do we honestly think anybody's going to get seriously prosecuted from it? No. Uh, so there's a problem. Next problem is how many people in the country want him to be impeached? Half, maybe. Maybe a little less, maybe a little more. And if they do, why do they think he's being impeached? The people that don't want him impeached think he's being impeached purely for politics. Got nothing to do with his performance in office, which is just jaw-dropping, frankly. And so you're not really showing them anything. You're solidifying their support a little bit. And you're not going to get the job done. That's the thing. If you get an impeachment through, a bill of impeachment through the House, which you can do with a majority, you got to go to the Senate, have a trial, which, by the way, they just didn't do any of that in the second impeachment of of Trump, have that trial, and then have a vote, and two-thirds of the Senate has to vote to impeach. I don't want to say never, because we don't like to say never, but that's not going to happen. So you're going to have a lot of histrionics. And I, and I think that some of the people in the Republican Party believe that, you know, well, if we have the actual impeachment, it will bring uh, all of these things to the front and people will see all of the corruption and so forth. Well, if they haven't seen it up to now, what makes you think they're going to watch it presented in some bizarrely boring way in the House of Representatives? And if you think that it's going to get covered by the major media outlets, like they covered Trump's impeachments, well, you, you probably have a you know a problem with the reality. It's not going to happen. You'll get a lot less coverage, and the coverage you do get will be a consistent string of talking heads bringing up how this is dangerous to the democracy and that we're ignoring, you know, more important things, all the sort of things that we talk about. And it's it's not going to go anywhere. So I'm very reluctant. I like the inquiry, the impeachment inquiry, to be able to issue subpoenas and get to the bottom of this and then maybe get some of this out in front of the people who might actually care. Yeah, I'm okay with that. But I just don't think if unless you find something absolutely damning evidence as part of your impeachment uh, inquiry, you may want to leave it there. I know it, it doesn't seem right, but lots of things in the justice system, such as it is, and I, the word justice is really misapplied pretty much throughout that system, either don't seem right or aren't right. This is probably one of them. But I think it's worth thinking about to say, does the fight with the media and everyone else to try and get an impeachment for Joe that isn't going to go anywhere in the Senate at the same time, they're trying to nail Trump to the wall in uh, three different jurisdictions. And so far, I've bankrupted poor Rudy Giuliani. Is, is that where we should be putting our energy right now? We, we've got a, we've got a big struggle in front of us. And I'm not sure we want to divide our army. It is seldom in military tactics wise to divide your forces. Once in a great while, usually when you're trying to get someone to walk into a trap or make a move that they are not aware of with part of your uh, 
part of your army or even a navy for that matter, although navies are a little easier to see. <laughs> uh, but beyond that, it's usually thought to be a bad idea. And it seems to me like we're fighting on too many fronts here. He's a bad president. He's done bad things. Let's do what we can in an inquiry to bring out what they are. Let's see if we can, you know, get Hunter certainly needs to be brought to the fore. But after that, I'm not sure we get anywhere. I mean, look at what we have. We have Mayorkas out there the from Homeland Security. I mean, Homeland Security. I, I wouldn't let, trust that guy to, to come over and, uh, you know, water my dog every day when I was out of town. Uh, you know, that, that guy is terrible and has done none of the requirements or the main requirements of his job. That's who you remove that you would think that would be easier to move. You think that you can't, you can't get rid of him. You think, you, but you're going to get rid of Biden or something? No. Merrick Garland falls in the same area. Let's keep our eye on the prize and stay looking for All right, we're back, folks. And back into my, uh, what I'd like to think of as the geopolitical scenario setting. <laughs> or the background of what people are talking about all the time. So I wanted to continue this. I printed some stuff out after doing some research from some some good resources, uh, the Department of Defense on this particular one. Because you may know that uh, Chairman Hui has uh, spoken to Biden last week, and it was just barely reported that during the conversation, once again, Chairman Hui had uh, said that he's going to uh, take over Taiwan, you know, one way or another, hopefully peaceably, sure, yeah, but they're going to keep over. And, of course, you know, Biden answered that. In a way that we could expect, I, I think he said uh, something like, uh, I like ice cream. But, you know, we're getting the gist now uh, that the Chinese just are not taking their eye off that ball. And we keep acting like they are. We keep Oh, well, we're doing this. We're doing that. We're sending people over there. Maybe John Kerry could go over there and talk to him about why they're building a new coal-fired plant like every 10 days. Um, you know, people that they respect. Sheesh. Anyway, so I decided to go through some of the scenarios that some of the defense people out there had for what would happen uh, if China decided to make a move on Taiwan. And there's really three possible scenarios that are, you know, in the probable sort of category. The first is sort of the uh, blitzkrieg approach. And in that scenario, China opts for a rapid, overwhelming assault. Now, this is a high-risk, high-reward strategy, right? Uh, they need a quick victory before the international community can effectively respond, which is what Putin had hoped to have happen in Ukraine. You know, initially, there would probably be a lot of missile strikes targeting Taiwan's military infrastructure. And then we'd have the amphibious and aerial, aerial assault. Now, remember, they've been training uh, amphibious troops and bringing equipment in across uh, the straight, uh, right across the Strait of Taiwan. Uh, and it's not that far. And, of course, they have more than enough men to accomplish this. And so between the ability to soften up the target with the missiles and so forth, uh, as well as getting aerial dominance, and this is what they need very quickly. They need to get dominance in the air, air superiority, as we like to say, uh, because that will allow them to move more freely, to land their armor, and get it moving before it can be harried from uh, the, you know, air to ground missiles, and some of which are very effective to get tanks. 
Also, probably a lot of cyber warfare. That's not a surprise. Uh, they want to disrupt uh, their communications and command systems. And unfortunately, in that scenario, there is a high probability for civilian casualties. And of course, of international backlash, uh, a lot, but we're not exactly sure what that means anymore. Second scenario. This would be sort of what you think of as coercive diplomacy, right? This would, China uses a mix of military posturing and diplomatic pressure to try and get Taiwan uh, to submit without a few full-scale conflict. It's it's different than Hong Kong. Remember Hong Kong had a 99-year lease uh, and then it was supposed to go back to China. China still put a lot of pressure on it at the end. That's not the case here. But remember, we've helped things out along. Uh, that's I'm being very sarcastic by having a one China policy. In other words, we've sort of catered to the communist Chinese by saying we recognize Taiwan as something, but we don't recognize them as another country. But we will help them out, but we don't see them as another country. And Biden and others said, well, we will defend them. But what are they if you keep saying there's only one China? I don't know. I don't think they know anymore. In the second scenario, then, as we said, hopefully there won't be a full-scale conflict. But you'd have, and this is something that I thought, naval blockade. Sort of like we did around Cuba during the missile crisis, right? Enforce a maritime blockade, choke off their economy. So much of their economy gets shipped to other places, mainly here. And if that happened, what's going to, what's going to, are they going to be able to break the Chinese blockade? No, China now has the largest uh, navy in the world, by the way. So, that would make an interesting scenario, wouldn't it? Who would do what when that came up? There, of course, would be a lot of propaganda campaigns to undermine Ty- Taiwanese morale. And, of course, that goes to the cyber attacks and all that kind of stuff. And then they would start leveraging all this economic and political influence they've been gathering for years now with, by loaning people money and making everybody beholden to them to get some pressure from outside countries on them. And... It could change. It could, it could stay. In, you know, it could strain rather China's resources and their relations. I'm not so sure how much they care about their relations exactly, but their resources. If this didn't have something happen pretty quickly, it's an expensive scenario. The last one is uh, what they call the incremental approach: gradual, calculated strategy. <laughs> one of the one of the people refers to it as salami slicing tactics. I don't know where that came from. Uh, small, sick ale incursions. Frequent violations of airspace and waters, a bunch of cyber espionage, you know, incident information, uh, sowing discord, probably through uh, TikTok, a lot of economic pressure. Once again, you cannot forget that with these guys. That's why they're buying everything and getting involved with people, loaning them money, getting immersed in their economy so that they can have leverage on them for all these kinds of things. You know, it's a slow pace if something like that happened. Uh, the risk in there is that it also would allow Taiwan to strengthen their defenses and alliances because they could see what's happening. Now, each one of these things is kind of has its own set of challenges and risks, not just for China and Taiwan, but for everybody. Uh, no one quite knows how we're going to respond to any of these. It's not clear. And that all by itself is a dangerous situation. When there's clearly some movement on the horizon and no one has any idea what everybody else is going to do about it. That kind of uncertainty leads to bad results. It leads to war. So while we were at it, 
I thought I would also say something about the Gulf of Hormuz. Now, remember the Gulf of Hormuz is there between uh, the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, and that is the transit point that allows shipping to not have to go around Africa <laughs> if they're in the Mediterranean to get to India and those things. Now, this is a pretty narrow waterway. It's a really crucial checkpoint and uh, to trade and, and just strategy because it's also trying to get warships through there besides just trade. Um, it's right between uh, the Gulf of Oman and the Persian Gulf. And it's only about 21 miles wide and it's an airless point, but the shipping lanes, because of the depth of the water, in either direction is only two miles wide. It's the only sea passage from the Persian Gulf to the open ocean. It's flanked by Iran to the north, the United Arab Arab Emirates, I always say that too fast, and Oman to the south. I mean, 20% of the world's petroleum passes through this strait. It, it is, it is, in fact, the main supply, if by just volume, uh, for much of the world, certainly uh, on the eastern side of the Gulf. Control over the strait means that you have control over a significant portion of the world's energy supply. And, of course, the ability to move uh, warships quickly out of the Mediterranean to someplace else or into the Mediterranean from someplace else. So it's extremely important. It's very vulnerable by terrorist attacks and so forth to be constrained by these kinds of groups. You see these advancements in cheaper missiles and drone technology. That's a significant threat. We're seeing it happen right now. Uh, Surface-to-surface missiles can be launched from the shore to reach pretty much anywhere in the strait because it's not very big. Uh, now with the drones coming on, uh, not only is it just single ones, but there are these drone swarms where there's a, a number of them that come in at once, uh, break up into a pre-arranged, you know, sort of uh, buzzing around to make it hard to target them and uh, then aim for, you know, pretty vital infrastructure on ships. It's an asymmetric kind of warfare. Unless smaller, you know, forces like these terrorists have a much larger impact uh, on the military powers. The area right by itself is, in fact, you know, if you control it, it's, it's a force multiplier. You know, just the area uh, and its narrowness and necessity for, as we would say, defense, because uh, where we defend much of anything, uh, makes it a logical point to do something with. And that's what they're doing right now. But you can understand now why it's so important and what the problem is. It's only 20 miles across. And it's got some nasty people who don't like it, the West on the other side. So what do you think is going to happen? And and now the the ability to cause damage to not only commercial shipping, but even to warships has been escalating, partly by the supplying from Iran. But still, you know, we are our technology or their technology that they got from us for the most part uh, allows them to be much more problematical or problematic, excuse me. Well, I didn't want to, you know, end on like a a bummer kind of thing today. So I looked up something that I thought was kind of fun, and I was going to play it for you. It's a few minutes of Ronald Reagan, a couple of different speeches put together about government and the country. And I think it's important to listen to these kinds of things once in a while. So I'm not going to play it. I'm going to play it for you guys. 
Okay, I haven't got it. I've got to uh, get it through the uh, actual machine here. Sorry about that, folks. It's pretty good, so I don't. I want to make sure that we uh, get that hooked up and not have a problem with it. We can't allow the uh, Ronald Wilson Reagan to not sound good, right? So let's see. Okay, here we go. This may work. Stand by. Okay, let's give it another try. I mean, remember, I am running the this uh, this board here, which <laughs> it should give you some idea what the deal is. Okay, here we go. Would shut the doors and sneak away for about three weeks. We'd never miss them. There was a senator the other day listing all these crazy research programs and how much they were costing and wound up his speech by introducing his own. He wants a study and a research of transcendental meditation. One, a study in which this was called the... Um, the uh, demography of happiness and in this study the government found out that uh, young people are happier than old people <laughs> and, uh, they found out that people that earn more are happier than people that earn less people keep looking to government for the answer and government's the problem if they would just take a little inventory and look around there's very little that government can do as efficiently and as economically as the people can do themselves William Faulkner at a Nobel Prize ceremony some time back said, man would not only endure, he will prevail against the modern world because he will return to the old verities and the truths of the heart. But let me tell you one other thing I know for sure. He is immortal because he alone among creatures has a soul, a spirit capable of compassion and sacrifice and endurance, prepared to make so many sacrifices. There will come times in the lives of all of us when we'll be faced with causes bigger than ourselves. Winston Churchill, during the darkest period of the Battle of Britain in World War II, said when great causes are on the move in the world, we learn we're spirit, not animal. And that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which, whether we like it or not, spells duty. This nation was born with a band of men, the Founding Fathers, a group so unique we've never seen their like since rose to such selfless heights. Fifty-six men achieved security and standing in life, but valued freedom more. They pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They gave us more than a nation. They brought to all mankind for the first time the concept that man was born free and that government was created by us for our convenience, having only the powers that we choose to give it. This experiment in man's relation to man is a few years into its third century. Saying that may sound, make it sound quite old, but let's look at it from another, another viewpoint or perspective. If you could condense the entire history of life on earth into a motion picture that would run for 24 hours a day, this idea that is the United States wouldn't appear on the screen until three and a half seconds before midnight on December 31st. You know there are great unsolved problems. We still have a long way to go. It's news, bad things are news. We keep hearing the, the bad things, we hear the accusations, and we're kind of used to accepting the accusation as proof of guilt. You are also, I know, looking at the future that seems uncertain to most of you, but which, let me assure you, offers great expectations. We who had preceded you had just gotten so busy that we let things get out of hand. We forgot that we were the keepers of the power. Well, at last, we're remembering. 
For too long, government has been fixing things that aren't broken and inventing miracle cures for di unknown diseases. We took a giant step backward, spending like there was no tomorrow, opening the floodgates of printing press money. The bottom line was an unacceptable decline in the real wages, earnings, and buying power of the working families and senior citizens of America. It was Washington that grew fat and prosperous by making everyone else poorer. We live in the only country in the world where it takes more brains to figure out your income tax than it does to earn the income. We need your youth, we need your strength, we need your idealism to help us make right that which is wrong. We can stand tall and proud on our record and on the hopes that we offer for the future. You have been in our critically looking at the mores and customs of the past and questioning their value. I know that you've been than the generation that preceded it because it stands on the shoulders of that generation. Our civilized ideas, our traditions, our values are not like the ideology and war machine of totalitarian societies, just a facade of strength. Our intellectual and spiritual values are rooted in the source of all strength a belief in a supreme being and a law higher than our own. We concede no losses and we take no victories for granted. Hard work, personal initiative, opportunity, love of family, neighborhood, patriotism and belief in God. This is the noble and rich heritage rooted in great civil ideas of the West and it is yours. Those values so crucial to a strong and a successful country. Those were the values that we pledged to defend and restore. No force on earth can stop individuals from achieving great goals when they have the will and the heart to pull together and work together. We can turn the hopes of our people into the renewal of all the dreams and opportunities that our nation was placed on this earth to provide. When it's written, history of our time won't dwell long in the hardships of the recent past. You are free to be whatever you want to be with no one and nothing stopping you. In a free society, you are free to invent yourself, to turn yourself into a great teacher, a race car driver, a minister, or a movie star, or a grower and seller of flowers. You can be anything. It's your invention, and there's nothing to stop you. We're going to build a future together that will enable every one of you to reach for the stars. And you'll know what it is to enter the workforce or go to college in a land of prosperity, pride, and hope. When I was a young man, you knew that if you dreamed big and worked hard, there was no limit to how far you could go. You can't drink yourself sober, you can't spend yourself rich, and you can't prime the pump without pumping the prime. We hear so much breast beating about fairness and compassion, particularly from the other side of the aisle, because that's still not enough but we're headed in the right direction and we'll make progress. We believe the money pe people earn belongs to them, not to government. And it's about time they were allowed to keep a, better, a bigger share. Uh, there's mixed emotions when you step down. There's always things that you had left undone that you'd like to have done, but then uh, all of a sudden the curtain's pulled and that chapter's over. And My hope today is that in the years to come, it's your time to explain to another generation the meaning of the past and thereby hold out to them their promise of the future, that you'll recall the truths and traditions of which we've spoken. It is these truths and traditions that define our civilization. Well, there is a real president speaking. I know there were some pieces in there that uh, were a little harder to hear because they were taken from some big halls. 
where he was speaking, but I felt that it was a nice piece to play at this time. And remember that not everybody is like our present leadership. And there are people out there, few and far between, let's not kid ourselves, who are Reagan-esque. And that doesn't mean they have to be like Ronald Reagan. I mean, you heard his humor, his delivery, all of those things. You can't really emulate another person. You can't really emulate their style. The Democrats did this for years uh, after JFK. They all wanted to sound like they were from, you know, from someplace in Massachusetts and uh, were just uh, getting off the uh, off one of their yachts. And it just didn't play well. They remember they cut their hair the same way. They tried to have the whole that whole thing because they wanted to somehow self-identify with that. We've had that go on with Reagan for a while, but it, no one's ever been able to capture it. And his optimism, which people talk about all the time, is also hard to capture because it isn't. It isn't just Pollyannish. It is faith-based, and not just faith in a religious sense, but a faith based in the knowledge that we have a special relationship with each other and our Constitution and how our government was formed in this country, and a faith that that relationship can overcome extreme obstacles. And we've had them. Now, one of the things about history that we sometimes forget is that there's been a lot of big bumps in the road in the United States beyond the Civil War. Uh, there was, of course, you know, what happened in 1812 when we were at war again with uh, Britain. There was, you know, constant struggle and strife as the various states tried to assert themselves and find out what this states' right things really meant. And, you know, it's been a hustle-bustle kind of thing to establish this country. And then we have. Now, probably from, from Reagan on, people have just slowly forgotten how that happened or why these individual pieces, the Constitution, the relationship to government, federalism, the confidence in the vote, the relative fairness of the justice system, the ability to confront your accuser, the ability to vote for the people who make the decisions about your laws and the spending that your taxes go to. These seem to us obvious and like everyone has that. Of course they don't. It's as though they don't understand the rest of the world. They think that the rest of the world apparently that isn't like us is somehow held down by us. And what holds them down is their refusal to pick up some of the tried-and-true methods that brought us where we are. I'll be back next week.